That's a perfect song for what we'll be talking about this morning. If you would, turn to Revelation chapter 10. We have a little dog named Riley, and one time I was barbecuing in the backyard, and I accidentally dropped somebody's hamburger on the ground. And so Riley got the hamburger. And ever since that day, when I start barbecuing in the backyard, (laughs) Riley gets very excited. Because she's anticipating maybe I'm going to get something else from this barbecue. And it's a good picture of hope because she doesn't have anything uh, in her mouth, but she can imagine that something good is on the way and it might just be today. And so that's what hope is. Hope is the hope of something good that's coming that we haven't received yet, but it makes us excited It fills us with joy, and that's what we want to talk about today because the reality is life is hard, and we sometimes read in Scripture where it says, rejoice always, and we might ask the question, rejoice about what? When I look around me, I'm not sure there's anything to rejoice about. Well, the rejoicing is very much about what is coming, not simply what is already here. And you could say it's primarily about what is coming, not what we're already experiencing. What we we already experience is just a taste of what's to come. What is to come is truly what will fully and forever satisfy us. And so that's why hope is such an important thing in the Christian life. Well, one way to summarize uh, how we should look at life is to think about it in terms of the fact that we were created to glorify and enjoy God through trust and love. And to glorify God means that I shine the light on God in a sense in terms of his goodness and his greatness. When you praise God, when you thank God, when you testify of what God has done, when you rely on God, uh, when you trust God, You're glorifying God. You're shining a light on God in terms of his goodness and his greatness. And that's what we were created to do. That's why we were made in the image of God. And at the same time, we're to enjoy God. And what does that mean? That means that I look to God for all that I need and desire. That all that he is is meant to meet what I need. And all that he is is to fulfill the desires that I have. So as to help me and to make me happy. And so I'm to enjoy the God who created me because he designed me to find my help in him and my happiness in him. And therefore I glorify and I enjoy God. That's what I was made to do. And that's why in a fallen world, life is hard because God wants to stir us up and deliver us from... um, looking to everything else but him for what we need and trying to find happiness in everything else but him. And so, as C.S. Lewis said, God shouts to us in our pain. Why? To wake us up and to get us thinking about God and get us turning to God for the help we need and the happiness our hearts long for so that we don't just think, you know, my help is here on this plane, and my happiness is just on this plane, when it's really on this plane. That's where it truly is. And the way we glorify God and enjoy God is through trusting 
and loving. Those two things go together. And so all of Scripture, one way or the other, is encouraging us to trust and encouraging us to love in light of how we've been created to glorify and enjoy God. Well, that all relates to um, the fact that uh, in our day and time, and probably over the last 10 or 15 years or so, we've had a lot of um, movies that have been what you might call dystopian movies, and there have always been those kinds of stories. There are novels that are dystopian. Uh, the word dystopia comes from uh, two Greek words that are put together. It basically means bad place or um, hard place. It's what dystopia means. Utopia is the, is the good place. It's the ideal place. It's what we all want is utopia. Dystopia is the opposite of that. It's the bad place. It's the hard place. And there are movies like The Hunger Games, uh, Maze Runner, all kinds of movies that are dystopian in that society is in a bad place. Um, resources are short. Uh, governments are tyrannical. Uh, people are just getting by, and many times they're at odds with um, the government and other rogue forces in society. And the interesting thing is, um, people go to see those movies. You'd think we'd have enough trouble of our own that we don't have to sit for two hours watching somebody else's trouble. You know, why do we do that? What's the draw to that? Well, part of the draw for some people is is trying to imagine what you would do if you were in those circumstances. And a lot of times those movies and those novels, 1984, Brave New World, they're all um, somehow reflecting aspects of our society. And so we see value in thinking through, well, what if things get really worse? What if what's happening now just gets worse and worse and worse? It could look like this movie. And what would I do if I was in those circumstances? But somebody wrote an article about that and said at the end of the article that uh, usually those movies have at least one person that survives. At least one. And the question is, why would that be an encouraging thing? Because at least one person survived. So the idea that things can get really bad, but maybe I can make it through. It's actually a movie or a genre that can inspire hope in the midst of harsh realities. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Revelation. It's talking about harsh realities from a uh, picture book format. It's not talking about those realities in like a reality TV show type situation, but more in terms of um, a fantasy. But it's not just a made-up story. It's, it's pictures that are meant to tell us about true uh, realities and uh, talk about those things in a way that are actually meant to give us hope. And that's what the book of Revelation is intended to do. Um, the book begins talking about the loving rule of Jesus over all things for the sake of his church. And then it talks about uh, these seven seals that I believe have to do with uh, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and what we can expect to happen throughout history. And then there's the talk about 
the seven trumpets. And what I think those are, are ultimately referring to what the Bible talks about when it talks about the great tribulation right before Christ comes back. It's talking about when things get really bad. Because in Luke 21, it says, when things get really bad, Jesus says, look up because your redemption draweth nigh. That it's going to get so bad and it's going to reflect so much of what the Bible says about how bad it's going to be before Christ comes back that it's going to be like a trumpet. What do trumpets do? They get people's attention. And sometimes they announce the Calvary's coming, like Jesus. Or they announce warning, danger. You better get ready for what's coming. And so the trumpet judgments at the end of time will be very clear, I believe, to the people of God that this is not just another round of normal tribulation. This is the tribulation before Christ comes back. And it will be highlighting the fact that we need to look up for our redemption draweth nigh. And so that's where we are in the book of Revelation. We're in the midst of what you might call, uh, some people might call a dystopian section where things are hard. It's a hard place. It's a bad place in time before Christ comes back. And the question is, how are we to have hope in that? It was really interesting. Um, Someone highlighted something that an Irish poet named William Butler Yeats wrote. Uh, He wrote, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Now, if you think about what he said there, you might have thought he wrote that yesterday, just looking at our country. He actually wrote it after World War I, after the Great War and the rise of what was going on in Russia, he looked around him and had this foreboding sense of his civilization's demise. And yet, we could say the same thing today. That's why I say I don't know how soon it is um, that Christ will return, because this might be just another one of those kinds of periods. where It looks pretty bleak, but it's not as bleak as it's going to get before Christ returns, so it may be a lot longer before Christ returns. But there's no doubt that there are things happening today that we wonder, how can I rejoice always in light of what's going on? And it's because of the kinds of things that we find in this chapter. So let me read for us uh, chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. It says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it, 
and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, and in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This is the word of God. So here, at this point in this picture book of King Jesus, you could call the book of Revelation, you have a strong angel with a little book who shows up on the scene. So John is seeing these visions. He sees a series of visions. And this vision is a vision of a strong angel who, if you connect what is said about the angel to the picture of Jesus early in the book, you might think it's talking about Jesus. But if you read it carefully, you realize that it's talking about an angel who has features that point back to Christ. And the reason is because this vision is going to be talking about the things that are beginning to happen before Christ comes back. It's pointing to the return of Christ. And so this strong angel comes back, or excuse me, appears, and he has this little book. And uh, the question is, what is the little book? Obviously, it's about a prophecy because... Later on, uh, John is going to eat this book. And um, it's the same kind of thing that God told Ezekiel in the Old Testament, to eat my words, which meant to digest them inwardly and proclaim them outwardly. Proclaim from, my, from your heart the message that um, the people need to hear. And so... Um, This little book is very much about what is to come. It's a prophecy. And many people will connect it back to the the book in Revelation 5. And so it's very likely that the book that he digests is very much connected to the rest of the book that we see uh, recorded in Revelation. And it centers around uh, what's going to happen right before Christ comes back and when he comes back. What, what is going to happen when God is going to bring everything to a close. And so you have this strong angel with a little book. And so the question is, how is this supposed to be encouraging to us? Well, the book is open. It's not closed. It's an open book. And many would say the reason why it's open is because the seven seals have been taken off the book and now it's open which means it's ready to be implemented. It's ready to be fulfilled. It's no longer something secret. It's no longer something to be kept secret. Uh, The seals have been broken, and now everything is to begin to come to pass. And so what are the implications of a book filled with prophecy? It means that the story has already been written before it happens, because that's what prophecy is. 
Prophecy, obviously, in one sense, can simply be God's perspective on what is happening, because prophecy isn't always simply future. It's many times just God's perspective on what is happening, a prophetic word from God about what's happening. But many times it is about the future, and many times those things are connected, God's perspective on the present and what's going to happen in the future. And this is very much about the future. And so what we have in the little book is God's account of the story, how it's going to come to an end. Someone has highlighted the fact that um, one helpful analogy with regard to God and a lot of different things in the Bible is to see God as an author and to see history as a story, his story. That's what we call history, right? His story. And to realize that In a sense, we are characters in the story. Now, when I think about that initially, I think, well, that sounds like, um, you know, kind of like puppet stuff, kind of like fate, kind of like God just kind of pulling the strings and things are happening, and yet um, we're not really uh, people that have um, any real responsibility or real choices or anything like that. The Bible makes clear that that's not true. That from one perspective, we should see that the story has already been written. But that doesn't mean that we don't make real choices every day and we're not responsible for those choices. Why? Because God tells us that's the truth, that our choices are real choices and that we're responsible for them. And so the purpose of uh, God telling us things like he's sovereign over history... And the book has already been written, so to speak, is not to, on the one hand, paralyze us and and make us not do anything, not pray, not witness, not uh, take any action. It's not meant to paralyze us, nor is it meant to put us to sleep. Uh, I I don't care, you know, what happens. God's kind of written the book already, so I won't pray. I won't do anything. I'll just kind of go through life in a fog. Uh, That's not what God wants us to do to do with this truth either. God tells us things for a reason. And sometimes we think the reason is not the reason uh, God intended. Like, ah, it's all about fate. It's all about, uh, it's already, the book's already been written. So why would God actually say, I want you to know that I see the end from the beginning. I see the whole picture. And I've ordained everything. And indeed, in a sense, I've written it all in a book. I'm the author of history. I've written the beginning, I've written the middle, and I've written the end. Why would that be something important? Why would that give me hope? Because it would tell me that there is a purpose in everything. Um, One of our children, actually all of our children have been writers. They've they've enjoyed writing stories as they, they have grown up. And one of them... Um, is famous in our household for uh, writing and rewriting the same story. And um, I won't tell you who this person is, but this person um, has this one book that they've been working on for a long time, and they'll get a new idea, and they'll have to rewrite the story. And so they get a new idea, and they rewrite it over and over and over again. And, And why is that the reality? Because... It all has to fit together. It all, it all has to have 
a point and a purpose in the story. And so if you come up with a different part to the story, then you have to shape everything else around it. Well, that's meant to be an encouragement to us. I I share that to say that there's no part of what we experience that isn't part of a bigger story, and therefore it has a purpose in that bigger story, that it's not without purpose, it's not fruitless, it's not vain, and that all of our lives are part of this bigger story that God has written as the author. Um, In fact, someone has talked about the fact that the word or the name Yahweh in the Old Testament is in a Hebrew tense that's what you would call a causative tense, meaning that the implication could be something like this, just to narrow it down, that you could translate um, the meaning of the name Yahweh, which is God's personal name in the Old Testament, as I cause to exist. That if it exists, I cause it to exist. I cause to exist. And someone has said that would be, uh, you could um, say in light of that, that God is author. He is the I am, the great I am, which means he's self-sufficient. He's independent. He doesn't need anything. And so that's sort of him outside of his creation. But what about in relationship to his creation? He is the one who causes all things to exist. Um, And so when we think about what's going on in our lives, we have to realize that one important aspect of it, it's not the only aspect of it, but one important aspect of what's going on in our personal lives and in our country and in our world and throughout history is that it's part of a story that's ultimately for the glory of God and for the salvation of souls. And therefore, it has a good purpose. There's a story in the Old Testament that I like where um, Joab is taking uh, David's uh, army into battle because there's been this this, uh, conflict over David trying to honor someone whose dad just passed away among the Ammonites, and they think he's just trying to uh, attack their land, and so they humiliate the people that David sent to them. And so anyway, just to make a long story short, you've got uh, David's, David's army being led by Joab fighting the Ammonites. And uh, the Ammonites have a huge army. And Joab says this uh, to the people that he's leading. He says, uh, be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. May the Lord do what is good in his sight, which is a way of pointing to uh, God's going to do what God's going to do. God is sovereign. God's in charge. In a sense, God has already written the story. But the implication for Joab wasn't, so let's go home. Let's not fight the battle. That's not his response at all. His response is, let's go forward and do what we know is the right thing to do, to protect our families and to protect our nation. Let's do what's right. Let's do what we should do. Let's give ourselves wholeheartedly, even in laying down our lives, because God is in charge. God will do what God will do. 
Now, let's do what we should do in this situation. And so, ethereal purpose, the author of history has a purpose in everything. And the fact that he has a purpose in everything isn't meant to paralyze us or make us sleepy. It's actually meant to motivate us to be courageous and to do what's right and to lay down our lives for the good of other people. The second thing is that, as we see in Revelation 10, he talks about the fact that uh, following this strong angel coming down with the book, uh, the strong angel cries out in verse 3 with a loud voice, and after that there are seven peals of thunder that are uttered, seven loud uh, thunderclaps. And evidently those thunderclaps say something. They communicate a message. And John is getting ready to write down the seven things that are said. And he's told, do not write them down. Now you might wonder, why would God let John hear those seven thunderclaps and whatever they communicated and then say, wait a minute, John, I didn't let you hear those so that you could communicate those to the rest of the body of Christ. Many people have speculated, trying to figure out why God would do that. To me, the best explanation is to highlight the fact that, on the one hand, the the seven claps of thunder probably said something about judgment, because thunder and God's judgment are often associated in Scripture. And yet, we might get the idea that God has told us everything or intends to tell us everything. And so many people will take that as it was a private message to John to make a very public point. The public point is God doesn't intend for us to know everything we can know. But there's plenty we don't know. And you can actually see that reflected in Deuteronomy 29.29 where it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. So think about what he says there. He says, the secret things belong to God, which means there are things that God knows that we don't know. Those are secret things. He says, the things revealed belong to us, which means God has revealed some things to us, and they belong to us. They should be important to us. And why? So that we may observe all the words of this law, which means... I am to be at peace with the unknown through the known. I'm to be at peace with what I don't know because of what I do know. So I don't need to know everything. I just need to know what I ought to know. And what ought I to know? I ought to know what this book says, how it reveals God to me, how it reveals my own heart and life, how it reveals Jesus and what he did for us and what he promises us. And so what, what I do know is the key. Now, um, we all wrestle with the unknown, right? Uh, we wonder what tomorrow is going to hold. We wonder whether we can handle certain situations, like the story of Corrie ten Boom. When she was a little child, she saw um, another child die, and she immediately was struck by the, the fear that her own dad would die. 
And so she ran to her dad, and she was in tears, and she said, you know, you can't die, you can't die. And her father sat her down and said, Corey, uh, you've probably heard this story, story many times. When you go, uh, you and I go to Amsterdam. When do I give you the ticket, if you remember the story? And she says, well, right before we get on the train. And he says, well, we have a wise father, and he knows when we're going to need things, too. Don't run ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. The reality is none of us know what's coming. We don't know what's coming this afternoon. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. We don't know what's coming 10 years from now. We don't know all of that. But what do we know? We know the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. We know the God who's made great and precious promises to us. One of which is, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will cause all things to work together for your good. He's made us great and wonderful and precious promises. That's why I think uh, that's the kind of thinking that's behind Psalm 131, which is just a three-verse psalm that says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. So you see what the psalmist is doing there. He says, uh, when we have a proper hope in God, when we know what he's told us about himself and what he's going to do for us, it doesn't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter that I don't know what's happening or what is going to happen. I can be like a weaned child. A weaned child is a child that's not struggling to get something from its mother. It's at rest. It's at peace. And it's at peace because it knows that it will get what it needs when the time comes, whatever happens. And so unknown peace is not a peace that you don't know. It's a peace about the unknown. That I'm okay with the fact that I don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or 10 years from now because, I, because of what I do know, which is what God has revealed. So I don't have to be worried about the secret. I don't need to feed my heart on what has been revealed in God's word. Well, if you look at verses 5 through 7, he goes on from there and he talks about the fact that this uh, strong angel swears by God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea. <clears throat> and he says, basically, that I, that I know that uh, what I'm about to tell you is going to come to pass because uh, if God can do these things, he can certainly do what he's said he's going to do. If he's done these things in the past, we know he can definitely do these things in the future. And he says there will be delay no more. What is that delay? The second coming. Uh, Jesus is going to come back. Um, there won't be a delay any longer. Jesus is going to come back and wrap everything up, so to speak. But then he mentions... The mystery of God, he says, the mystery of God is finished. And the question is, what is the mystery of God? 
Well, in other passages, it talks about mystery. In Ephesians 3, uh, Paul says, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God. So the mystery has to do with Christ. And there are other verses in Colossians that highlight the fact that Christ is the mystery. What Christ would do for us is the mystery. The bringing of the Jews and the Gentiles together into one body is the mystery. The gospel, as we know it, is the mystery that God was going to do something amazing, something that we would never expect him to do. The idea of the mystery is it's a a secret that God reveals. In the New Testament, mystery is used in terms of a secret revealed. It was secret for a while, but now through the um, prophets and apostles, it's being proclaimed, and it's the secret that God is going to come to earth. God is going to write himself into his own story. He's going to become a character, indeed the character, in his own story that he might redeem other characters in the story. And that's the mystery, is that God would write himself into the story in the person of Jesus and rescue the other characters in the story through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... The reality is this story, if you think about this story, this is what people wrestle with. People who aren't believers, and even as believers, we wrestle with the fact there's so much evil and suffering in the world. And that means God, the author of history, has written much evil and suffering into the story. Why? There's all kinds of reasons for that. It's a complex question about why. But we can at least say what Corey Ten Boom said when the, I think it was the, um, she a violinist uh, in the concentration camp said, why did, why did God do this to me? And basically through this experience, mangle my hands so that I couldn't play anymore. And, and Corey and Betsy said, well, we don't know exactly, you know, what all uh, God is doing in this. But what we do know is that he, he sent his son to die for us, and he did it because of love. Which is another way of saying, I don't know why all these bad things are happening. I can't answer that question in depth because that's a very complex question, but I do know that God is going to bring good out of the evil. I know that God is going to bring the best out of the worst. And that's the story, is how God uh, mysteriously works like the song we sing talks about. He works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, that he might bring the best out of the worst. I was doing some reading this week, and if you read about forest fires, obviously in California we see forest fires as a bad thing, uh, whether it's in Laguna Niguel or wherever it might be. Uh, fires, fire, forest fires or fires in general, we tend to see as a negative thing. And yet in nature... Fire is actually essential for some good things to take place. It's essential for removing um, the buildup of ground debris and allowing uh, other organisms to flourish, uh, other plants to flourish, uh, to actually allow other animals 
uh, to flourish in various ways, obviously uh, to allow some um, pine trees to produce their seeds and to multiply so that uh, someone has said it's counterintuitive how beneficial fire is. When those who look at the big picture of fire and forest fires and things like that. And that's the point that the Bible makes, is that it is counterintuitive to realize that God is actually using all kinds of terrible evil and suffering to do amazing things, beneficial things, good things, things that we will praise him and thank him for forever in heaven. And that's... um, I think the perspective, there's a story in 1 Kings 19 about um, Elijah who has just been on Mount Carmel and has slain the prophets of Ahab and Jezebel. And uh, Jezebel says, just like you killed them, I'm going to kill you. And so he makes a run for it. And he runs out into the wilderness and he's hiding in a cave. And God shows up and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then it says the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And it says that um, Elijah says basically, no, um, everybody in Israel has either abandoned you or been killed. And I am the only one left. And so God comes to him. And the first thing God does is he sends a strong wind. And it says, but God was not in the wind. It's so strong that it's breaking the rocks. And then God sends an earthquake to shake everything. But it says, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then he sends a fire, a roaring fire. But it says, but God wasn't in the fire. You notice a strong wind. You notice an earthquake. You notice a fire. It gets your attention. But then at the end it says, after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle blowing that could be easily missed. Now, some people take that story and say, that's the way God leads us, with a still, small voice. That is not the point of the story. That is reading into something that it's not saying. The point of the story is, Elijah thinks he's the only one left. And he's despairing. He wants God to take his life. And God says, you don't know what I've been up to. I've been doing things that you don't even realize. And he goes on to say, I'm going to leave 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 times more people than you because I'm at work. But you don't know that because I often work in ways that are so quiet and so gentle and so secret that you just don't see it. And that is true of all of us. We think because we can't see God's work, God isn't at work. Because we feel like we're the only one, we must be the only one. And God reminds us that the only way you can fully understand what's going on is to believe what I tell you about what's going on. You have to believe my word when I tell you that I am going to fulfill my purposes. I am going to bring a Savior into the world, Elijah. I'm going to keep my remnant. Uh, you, you know, the, the believing remnant is not going to be snuffed out by them killing you. 
Uh, I'm at work and I'm going to fulfill my good, good purposes. Well, the last thing is, is the mixed bag that we see reflected in the last verses of this chapter, verses 8 through 11. In this section, um, John is told to eat the little book. Um, In verse 9, he says, take it and eat it. He's to digest the message and preach it from his heart. And as I mentioned earlier, Ezekiel was told to do the same kind of thing. And it says, in his mouth, it was sweet as honey, but in his stomach, it was bitter. And then it goes on to say at the end that you must continue prophesying, proclaiming God's word about what's coming. And so what is this, the honey and the, the bitterness all about? Well, it's obviously a reflection on the message that he's going to be proclaiming and its effect on him initially, as well as his effect, its effect on others. Um, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 3, uh, where the same kind of thing happens, God tells Ezekiel that you're to um, take into your heart all my words which I speak to you and then tell them to the people of Israel. And he says they're stubborn. They're not going to listen. But you're to be a watchman and you're to warn them even if they don't listen to you. And so the same kind of thing is happening here. John is commissioned to speak the truth even though people will resist it and they won't receive it. And so what is the application for us? There's a lot that can be said about that, but let me just make this application. We can trust God with the happy things and the hard things in his word and in his world. And what I mean by that is there are things that are sweet that we can read in the Bible. That God will be with us, that God... Uh, loves us. Those are sweet kinds of things. But the reality is, there are some really bitter things in the Bible. You read about hell. You read about uh, suffering of various kinds. Uh, there are some really hard things. Things that are happy messages. Things that are hard messages. And the same thing is in our lives. There are things that we can rejoice over whether it's the success of our children or uh, relief of pain and healing and successful surgeries or whatever it may be, we can thank God those are, those are sweet things in our mouth. But there are other things where uh, we know of people that um, still haven't yet believed in Christ, that have wandered away from the faith, that, that are going down a path that we know is not good. That's a bitter thing. And the reality is that we should feel both those things. Paul could talk about um, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We should be people that grieve over things appropriately. Where people are, what's happening to them that that are negative and bad. Uh, The Bible talks about in Genesis 6 that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. It says in Psalm 78, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Talking about grieving God. In Mark 3, it says Jesus looking around, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart because they didn't want him to heal the man with the withered hand. 
Um, It says that Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem, saw the city and wept over it. So there's an appropriate sickening to our stomach when we see uh, things happening that are evil, uh, people suffering, people in bad paths. Uh, We should feel that. And yet we should realize that we have good news. We have good news to share, good news that is to be in our mouths. So there, there may be some bitterness in our stomachs, but we have good news in our mouths to share, sweet things to share about the forgiveness of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the work of Christ. And that is hopeful to whoever we might be relating to. And so um, our lives are a mixed bag. History is a mixed bag, sweet things and bitter things. Um, And yet we need to realize that ultimately um, God is working all things together for good and that he's up to good things, even through the bitter things. Uh, The story of Job is an encouraging story to me. I love the story of Job because, um, because Job wrestles the way I would have wrestled. I mean, if you think about what Job went through, I don't think anybody in here would say, ah, I could handle that. I could lose all my children. I could lose my health and still believe God is good and just praise God every day, never miss a beat. I don't think any of us would say that. Um, that's the reason why God put the book of Job in there, to say, I'm not surprised when you wrestle, but fight to come to Job's conclusion. And what was his conclusion? Ultimately, his conclusion was, I have declared that which I did not understand. I didn't know what you were doing. I didn't know what you were up to. You were working secretly. You were working uh, quietly. I didn't understand. But then he says, things too wonderful for me. God is a good God. He works quietly, secretly. He works counterintuitively, and yet he's up to things too wonderful for us to understand, which he says, I did not know. And the reality is, we don't know. We, eyes not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. We don't know the good that God is up to in its full manifestation. And yet... Uh, James 5 tells us, You have heard of the endurance of Job, but have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. But the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We have hope because of the outcome. We don't rejoice in all the evil and the suffering. We rejoice in the fact that God has promised an outcome too wonderful for us to even know, to fully comprehend And so I'll just conclude with this. Ultimately, when it says there will be delay no longer in verse 6, that means for us there's still delay. We're not there yet. At least I don't think we're there yet. And so that means there's going to be some more delay. And it just highlights the fact that the Christian life, walking by faith, is very much about waiting It's waiting for everything our heart longs for. It's waiting for God to fulfill everything that he's promised and not 
accusing him of having failed us when we don't receive it right away, but trusting him to bring it about. It says in 1 Thessalonians, I think I got this wrong in your notes, I put 1 Corinthians, but it's 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. It says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So that faith in Jesus means I'm going to wait. This life isn't everything that I want it to be. But Jesus said one day it will be greater than anything that I can imagine. And I need to hold on. And I need to keep proclaiming the sweetness of his love and his mercy and grace in Jesus. I need to keep holding on to that myself and trust that one day there will be delay no longer. That's hope. Hope waits. It waits just like Riley. Maybe there's something good coming. Maybe there's something that's going to actually really thrill my soul. And it's on the way. And so we pray that God would help us to live that way, to be okay with what we don't know, and to trust that God is at work even when we don't see it and we don't feel it. But he will keep his promises to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is meant to encourage us. It's meant to give us hope in harsh realities when when the world and society is a bad place, a a disappointing place, a hard place, whether it's our own individual lives or our uh, society or our world, whatever it may be, we thank you that there's hope. And that hope is rooted in what you've promised us and that hope is rooted in what you've told us about what you're doing and who you are and what Christ has done for us, which we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper so we pray that you would, you would meet us in light of where we are. If we have not yet turned from our sin and entrusted ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, please grant us grace to do that even this day. If we have done that, we pray that you would strengthen our faith because we're all tempted to fear. We're all tempted to be disillusioned and, and um, wonder about tomorrow but I pray that you would strengthen our faith and that we would find much joy and peace in believing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.